Well, it's a privilege to be able to speak to you this morning. Every now and then they let the old guys say something. <laughs> but we're delighted that uh, Alan has asked us to do this. It's, a, it's always a privilege and an honor. We pray the Lord bless him, help him to feel better, get, get better, be back with us. We're going to be looking at uh, the Gospel according to John, chapter 14, one of my favorite passages. Truths we need to know. Let me pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this opportunity once again to open Your Word and proclaim the glorious Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We stand before You and this congregation in weakness and in fear and in much trembling for the message we are charged to preach must not be a persuasive words of human wisdom, but rather a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power in order that our faith should not rest upon the wisdom of men, but only and always upon the power of God. To this desired end, we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Have your Bibles, please turn to John 14. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. I'd like to begin by saying, I believe that we are living in the last days of the last days. Besides being convinced of this each night when I watch the news on television, the Apostle Paul mentions something about the last days that shall come. Here in First Timothy or Second Timothy chapter three, he says, Realize this that in the last days difficult times will come. I think the King James says, Perilous times shall come. <clears throat> it's an interesting word that he uses there to describe these last days. Uh, it's, it's interesting that when Mark uses it, or Matthew uses it in chapter 8, verse 29, he's talking about Jesus casting out demons. And he says in Mark 8, 28, when he'd come to the other side of the country, the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. And this is the word that Paul uses for... Uh, Perilous times. Same word, except here it's translated exceedingly violent. That pretty well describes our times, doesn't it? They're perilous times, but they're times of exceeding violence, if you will. I love this passage of the demoniacs, especially enjoy Mark's gospel, where you have the one that's singled out by Mark named Legion, who is full of the devil, full of demons, and, and Jesus cast them out. The last thing that was said about him was that he was, he was found sitting at the feet of Jesus, fully clothed and in his right mind. That's what Jesus can do for us. That's what Jesus can do for our world and our people. And while I, I continually pray for a revival to happen 
I love our country as much as anyone else. I would like to see it return to the Lord. I don't think that's going to happen. I really don't. Uh, I'm convinced that we are about to come to the end of this age. And the Bible talks about this age. We're living at the, uh, the last days, the last days of this present age. And apparently there's going to be a whole uh, new age that follows this one. But I think at the end of this age is going to, uh, there's going to be this great social and political uh, upset of the world, if you will. And that God's going to come and He's going to judge. Even the demons here say something about, why, are you, why have you come to cast us out before the time? The end of the age, when the judge comes to, the, to, to cast us out. So they were concerned about the age and the last days, if you will. Our planet as we know it today is presently ruled <clears throat> by the kingdom of darkness. It's expressed through these demonic control over wealthy and influential rulers of this age, if you will economic forum, ready for their global reset. Uh, I think the world is, is ready for the end of this age. Um, this present demonic kingdom of this world employs every means of human technology and ability to achieve this uh, future uh, human utopia. It's uh, man... Uh, building the Garden of Eden without God. I think they call that Disneyland. I'm not sure, but I think that's what they call it. Anyway, there's, um, basically, our world has no regard for God, and they literally hate Jesus Christ. And all their, all their dreams of this utopian world, the global reset, is basically a hopeless Marxist dream, pipe dream. Uh, again, the end of this age will not become, will not come about because of global warming, but it will come about because God's going to show up. And He's going he's gonna to take over this world. He's going to judge this world. Um, certainly this age is going to end, and it's going to be followed by the age to come, the Bible talks about. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 32. Several places in the Scripture talks about this age, we're in it, and then there's an age to come. It says here in Matthew chapter 12, talking about the unpardonable sin, uh, He who is not with me is against me, Jesus said. He who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you that any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. So there's an age coming after this one that has sin in it. Because you won't be forgiven in the age to come. you got this age, sin. It's not talking about eternity. It's talking about another age. Another age is coming. And this is the end of this age and the beginning of a new age. And of course, Paul indicates that these last days, in 2 Timothy 3, further down, verse 13, 
that uh, men, evil men and liars shall grow worse and worse. The world's not getting better. The world's getting worse. There's a, there's a point you reach where you have, to, you have to take care of the infection or, or, the, or the body dies. And I think that's where we're at here. I haven't given you the bad news. I now want to turn to John 14.6 and give you the good news. Uh, in light of all this, we want to look at probably one of the most well-known passages in the Scripture and probably the most comforting passage in the Bible here in John 14.1-6. I love this passage. You probably, a lot of you probably have it memorized. I use it a lot in funerals. But we can use it, we don't have to wait until you die to hear this. Uh, you won't hear it at that point anyway, but your friends might. But anyway, we want to hear it today. So we're going to look at this passage of Scripture. Basically, it's part of the upper room discourse. It's addressed to disciples as well as all those who follow them and their faith in Christ the Lord. And it's designed to give both two things, clarification and comfort. Two things. Um, we've, we face an unknown and a troubling future. And these are great words to clarify a future and to give comfort to us in the midst of these things. So this is where we are. Basically, I have a point. I always try to have a point. Sometimes I have to find it while I'm preaching. But my point is, I think in this message, an absolute trust in Christ is the ultimate remedy for a troubled heart in times of distress. Let me say it again. An absolute trust in Christ is the ultimate remedy for a troubled heart in times of distress. So we want to look at the background here of John 14, 6. In chapter 13, this is the upper room discourse. Uh, they've gathered to uh, have a Passover meal with his disciples. This is his last supper with them. Uh, chapter 13 begins with, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of the world. That's significant. He knows he's about to depart out of this world. Verse 3, Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, he came forth from God, and he's going back to God. And of course, after he he washes the disciples' feet, and uh, Judas has now gone out to betray him, uh, we're to the place where Jesus is saying here in verse 31 of John 13, Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Notice it says in verse 33, Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You shall seek me, as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. And then he talks about a new commandment. But of course, Peter's not going to let this sit. I mean, notice in verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, wait a minute, wait a minute, where are you going? I, I didn't know you were leaving. Where are you, where are you going? What, where, what's going on here? And so he, he's not going to just let that lie. He's going to ask this question. And uh, so he, he basically <clears throat> uh, wants to know more about this departure. And of course, all the rest of the disciples wanted to know as well. So here Jesus takes time 
to tell them truths that we need to know. Truths we need to know. And the first truth he's going to deal with is there's comfort knowing he's coming back for him. He's leaving, but he's going to come back and get them. Uh, and certainly, he, he, verse 1 of chapter 14, now we're in chapter 14. I can move my marker here. For, chapter 14, verse 1 says, Let not your heart be troubled. He's departing. They're troubled about this. They're facing some issues ahead of them. Let not your heart be troubled. Then he says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Um, interesting that Jesus is facing a pretty stressful situation himself. He's going to be crucified the next day. And yet he takes time to encourage and comfort his disciples here are troubled about his leaving. And so he's going to deal with their issues. Uh, basically, uh, he's going to re redirect their focus from the fact that he is departing, but he's coming back for them. And so he tells them, first of all, he tells them, they're not to only believe in God, which they do, but he adds, but you need to believe also in me. Notice he equates himself here with God. You believe in God? Believe also in me. And of course, Jesus is God. In John 1, uh, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and Word, 1 John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 18, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When you look at Jesus, you see God. And when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? But he's telling, his, he's telling his disciples here, he's actually demanding, if you will, that his disciples not only believe in God, but believe in him, just as they believe in God. So this is not just a pious wish, don't worry, be happy, everything's going to work out. He's demanding that they fully believe in him. I know he's going away, but put your trust in me. This word believe is more than just uh, believing something's true. Uh, you know, I, I believe the sun's shining. Even though sometimes it's a cloudy day, I believe the sun's shining. I know that's true. But this is more than that. This is, to, to believe, this word to believe here means the outgoing of the heart and confident trust exclusively in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. You believe God Believe in me with all of your heart. Entrust yourself to me as your Savior and your Lord. And of course, that believing in Jesus Christ with all your heart includes a turning away from anything else that you're relying on to give you comfort. He's the only one that's going to give you comfort. He's the only one that can meet your needs, if you will. This, diverse, this verse demands an absolute trust in Christ as the ultimate remedy for a troubled heart in times of distress. In times of your stress, you don't need to look to your employer, your government, or anything else. You need to look, look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And this is going to give you comfort. 
So the first verse tells us that faith is the basis of comfort. Then we get to verse 2. He goes on to say, he wants you to understand his going away and what his present work is. What's Christ doing now? Where is he at? What's he doing? Uh, Why did he leave? This kind of stuff. So he says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms, many mansions. If that were not so, I would have told you, because I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Notice several things in this verse. We'll look together here. First of all, he says, in my Father's house. There are actually only three places or realms or dimensions of existence in the created order, if you will. There's heaven, there's earth, and there's hell. There's only three places that you can be. You can't be on Mars. You have to be either in heaven, on earth, or in hell. Basically, now Jesus is telling us that he's gone into heaven. And basically, he's telling us, I'm going home. I'm going to the Father's house. I'm going to Dad's house. And the Father's house, or heaven, is the localized presence of God. I think it's interesting that one of the worst terms you can use to describe someone's condition is homeless. Homeless. He's got no home. I think of Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations. He cries out to God, Remember my misery and my homelessness. As he looks at Jerusalem destroyed by the Babylonians. Even the Apostle Paul, I, I had thought of this before, but it says in 1 Corinthians 14, up to this present hour, this is the Apostle Paul. And I complain. The Apostle Paul says, up to this present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless. That's kind of the bottom line of misery, isn't it? Homeless. For the believer, this present world is not our home. We try to make it our home, but it is not our home. We're strangers and pilgrims in this world. Heaven should be thought of as our eternal home place. Our eternal home. Ecclesiastes closes in chapter 12 by describing old age and then when when you die, you lose your teeth, you can't hear, you can't see. It talks about all that in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. But in in chapter 12 verse, verse 5 it says, For a man goes to his eternal home. So heaven is our eternal home place with God, with Christ. It's where we're safe. We find rest. We find acceptance. We find the people who love us and the people we love is at home, at the home place in heaven. In my father's house, he adds, are many mansions, are many rooms. This is an expression of, it carries the idea of spaciousness. There's plenty of room here. You don't have to squeeze in. It's not just a temporary tent. It's a palatial place. 
I remember we took a vacation once. Uh, I think it was in um, in Texas, uh, Padre Island, I think it was. And we walked in the room, and man, it had a fireplace, had a balcony, cooking stuff out there. The beautiful kitchen, several bedrooms, bathroom. First thing I said to my wife was, "I think we're in the wrong room." Well, I'll probably say that when we get to heaven. I think we're in the wrong room here. But that's what heaven's like. It's it's a gorgeous, spacious place. It's a it's a mansion. Um, anyway, he says, "In my father's house are many mansions." And then I go to prepare a place for you. This uh, present heaven, in reality, is is an intermediate location of the redeemed. Actually, we're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth. But in the meantime, this will do fine. I mean, this is the present heaven. All all the saints are there. Uh, They're not complaining at all. This is, you know, this room is horrible. No, that's not right. It's a wonderful place. But we've even got an upgrade coming called the new heaven and the new earth. And heaven, where the people of God who have gone to be with the Lord, is an actual place. It's a literal place. It's not some vague, nebulous, floating, ethereal cloud land where you float around, you play a harp, you've got this halo, and you've got these wings fluttering. I mean, I don't know where that came from, but that's not heaven. That's not what you're going to be like. Um, you ha- there has to be some kind of physicality to heaven. Let me just add this note. Keep in mind that the heresy of Gnosticism, with its tendency to de-physicalize the Christian religion, still plagues the church today. And they t- you see something in the Bible that sounds like it's a physical thing. Oh, that can't be right. Well, that is right. In fact, you can't be a real person without a body. What makes you a person is you've got a body that the Holy, your spirit resides in. And when you're out of your body, Paul says, I don't want to be naked. It's like being naked. I don't want to be naked. I want my body. So there's always this, this measure of physicality, and that's going to stay with you through all eternity. If you want to know what eternity is like, just look around. It's going to be like this, except no sin, no death, no sickness. It's, it's going to be a great upgrade in eternity. Well, heaven's similar to something like that. I haven't been there, so I can't really give you an eyewitness account, but from what I tell, uh, Jesus is already in heaven and he has a body. You understand that? He has a physical body. He ate, he could be touched, he could be seen. And he, in that body, ascended to heaven, and he's in heaven with that body. Now, Paul talks about, you know, I know a guy in, in Christ who, who, who was caught up to the third heaven. I don't know whether he had a body or not. I think he probably had a temporary body, I'm not sure. But he was allowed to go back in that case, if you will. But uh, basically... You can't be a human without a body. So keep that in mind. Our final dwelling place, in fact, our intermediate dwelling place, will have some physicality to it. I can't explain that. haven't been there. When I get there, I'll go, oh, okay, that's how that works. But I don't know that right now. But this is what it seems to me. And, you know, 
if the, if the Scripture seems to teach something, I'm going to assume that's what it means. I'm not going to bring my meaning to it. If it says that, I'm going to believe that, all right? And here's the bottom line to this. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. The reason I believe all these things, not because I've been there, but because Jesus said, if it were not so, I would have told you. Why do I believe it? Jesus said, if it weren't true, I wouldn't have said it. You can take his word to the bank. My word not anything. But when he says something, you can go to the bank with it. It's almost like the old... I love hearing Handel's Messiah around Christmas time. And I know everybody loves the Hallelujah Chorus. But my favorite one is, is, is... I think it's the third song in Handel's Messiah where it says... For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. You know, all this, every valley of the hill be laid low, and, and the glory of the Lord's going to come. How do we know that? The mouth of the Lord has spoken it. I'd always make the hair on the back of my neck stand up when I hear it sung so beautifully. Why do I know it's true? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Now we come to this encouragement for the future, verse 3. So you have this, faith is a basis for, for comfort, understanding his present work in verse 2. Now in verse 3, he gives encouragement concerning the future. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming again and I'll take you to myself, so that where I am, there you will be also. Notice the purpose and goal stated in this verse. Sometimes miss this. Notice he says, he's not coming to be where we are. He's coming to take us where He is. There's a big difference in that. So this is not the second coming where He comes with all His angels and we're all on white horses and we're coming down to judge the world. No, He's coming to get us. He's coming to take us to His house so that we'll be where He is. He's not coming to be where we are. J.B. Phillips translates this beautifully, I think. He says, I am coming again to welcome you into my own home so that you might be where I am. That's a beautiful translation, isn't it? I'm coming to take you so that you can be in my house and be where I am. So it seems this coming again, as the angel promised at the ascension, is that Jesus is coming back for us. And we'll be somehow, he's caught up in the clouds, and we're going to be caught up in the clouds with him. So... You need to understand that's, that's what he's talking about. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming again, and I'll take you to myself where I am also. And this is something that we anticipate. Uh, you know, there, there's a couple of ways to get to heaven, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and both of them are imminent. I mean, I could die before I get off the step. It's imminent. I don't know when it's going to be, but I know it's overhanging. It could be at any moment. Church believe this. Read all the, all the New Testament writers. You know, he's at the door. He's standing at the door. It could be any minute. Jesus is coming. Get ready. You, you should be aware of this. It could be any minute. I could die and go be with him right now, or he could come and get me right now. Just, it could come any time. It'd be like a twinkling of an eye. 
but certainly will be ushered into his immediate presence. A lot of verses on this, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, we are alive and remain, shall be caught up, uh, transferred from here to there. That's basically what that means. Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, be of good comfort, prefer rather to be absent from the body, at home with the Lord. And then he, he, in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about the man that was caught up into the paradise of God. Basically, heaven's where Jesus is, and he's preparing a place for us, and he's going to come and get us so that we can be in his house. That ought to comfort your heart. I mean, I hope you're not looking to the government to take care of you. That's not ever going to happen. But Jesus is going to take care of you. So there's comfort here in his words. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house of many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm coming again to get you that you might be where I am. All right? Now we go to verses 4 through 6. He gives a word of clarification. And I think this is important too. Sometimes you wonder, how do these two things fit together? Well, it gives comfort. These disciples wonder, you're going to leave us. What, what about that? He, he comforts them by telling them he's going to take care of them. Then he gives this word of clarification, basically telling us that Jesus is the only way to heaven. You're not going to get there in any other way. Notice, understanding heaven, in verses 4 and 5, is kind of a God thing. Uh, he says, and you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? So it's interesting. The, the Lord's totally comfortable, and he fully understands all this talk about heaven and earth and back and forth, uh, our departure, his departure. All this is kind of perplexing to you and I that are part of a fallen human race. Uh, these things are not part of our dimensional experience. We've not been in that dimension called heaven. Jesus has. He talks about it like it, he's very familiar with it. He knows about it. We don't. He does. So this, this business of heaven, it's, a, it's kind of a God thing, if you will. So let me summarize this verse. Verse 4, he implies that we can and we should know how all this actually comes about. Where I'm going, you know, the way you know. And then Thomas gives a reply for, for all of us, basically. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Really, we don't know anything about heaven. We don't know where it is. In and of ourselves, we certainly don't know how to get there. In and of ourselves, all right? Apart from God's intervention to help us know. So secondly, so first of all, understanding heaven is a God thing, verses 4 and 5. Get to verse 6. It really narrows down and, and gives us an understanding that getting to heaven is a Jesus thing. You don't get to heaven without Jesus. Going to heaven is a Jesus thing. And Jesus said to him, you know, they, I don't know, how do we know the way? Jesus replies to that statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. So getting to heaven is this Jesus thing. It's interesting, this reply here is one of the great seven I am's statements in the Gospel of John. If 
you took a class on John, you had to memorize these seven I am statements throughout the book of John. Basically, he says in John 6, 48, I am the bread of life. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Verses 10, 9, I am the door. Verses 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. Verse, uh, chapter 12, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. 15, 11, I am the true vine. And then here, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And every one of these is preceded by this definite article, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. There are a number of ways that people claim you can get to God. But there's only one exclusive way to God that brings you to heaven. And that's through Jesus. There's no other way. Boy, the world hates that. The world literally abhors that. They think there are many ways to heaven. But this pretty conclusively says there's only one way. And Jesus said, I'm it. I am the way. It's interesting that Jesus called himself the door. What is a door? And we're not looking for a handle and hinges on Jesus. He doesn't have those things. But he acts as the door. A door is the means of access. We come into this room through the door. We come to God through Christ and Christ alone. A thief and a robber tries to climb up some other way. But you only get to God through the door. And Jesus is the way to God. He's the only means, the only access to the Father, to heaven, to eternal life. You can't get there by performing good works or social justice or being a good person any more than you can get to God's house in a rocket ship. You can't get there that way. It's only through Him. I am the way. And then he adds, I am the truth. We live in this culture of lies. Every commercial is a lie. And I, believe me, I've watched a lot of commercials in my day. They're all a lie, but they want to sell their product so they have fudge a little bit. Government lies. Every, we, we're born telling lies, the Scripture says. Jesus is the embodiment of truth, believable truth. The final reality of the true way to heaven is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is in contrast to all the lies of the devil and the reason philosophies of men. Jesus himself is the truth. And sadly, the human heart suppresses the truth of God, suppresses Jesus in unrighteousness. Romans 8, 1, 8, 18 says, it readily exchanges the truth of God for a lie. All men have bought into the, the lie. What is the lie? Well, the lie starts back in Genesis when the devil says, you shall be as gods. And all men buy into that. We've all bought into, somehow or another, I can make it on my own. I don't need God. And I, in fact, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I don't really need God. Well, that's the lie of the devil. God is condescended in the person of His Son to reveal to man the truth of salvation. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John 8.32, Jesus said, You shall know the truth. He is the truth. And the truth shall make you free. He's the way, the truth. He's also the life. He describes himself here as actually the essence of life. The absolute principle. The word here is zoe. In the Greek, there are two words for, for life. Zoe and bios. We have biology, zoology. So zoe is the basic underlying principle of life. That which, which, which lives. Something, there's a difference between that which is dead and that which is alive, that which is life. And uh, biology is the expression of that life through some physical thing like an animal or whatever. But Jesus is, he is the, the essence of life. He's the very principle of life. He, is, uh, he alone can deliver from death and as the abundant source and giver and sustainer of life. John 10.10 10 says, the thief comes not but to kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life, that you may have it more abundantly. He says in, in chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And then John closes his, his gospel by saying, These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life through his name. He is the life. There's no life apart from Him. There's no truth apart from Him. There's no way to God apart from Him. No one comes to the Father, Jesus says here, but by me. Boy, the world hates that. The exclusivity of the Christian religion. That's why it's hated above all the religions of the world. They hate Christianity. And just in case you didn't get this... um, one and only essential requirement that gives access to the Father is exclusively obtained through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 Neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but through Him. Therefore, as an ambassador for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through me, I entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God by entrusting yourself to the saving work of Jesus Christ. If you've not done that, you need to do that. There are no options. This is the option that God gives you. So let me just close by saying, um, John 14, 1-6 gives us it gives the stressful heart in trying times both a sense of clarification and comfort with regard to whatever happens to us. I'm trusting Jesus Christ. That's, that, that's, my, that's my bottom line, if you will. Um, even death ceases to be a disaster if you put your trust in Christ. It just becomes a departure. You know, what a disaster he died. No, it wasn't a disaster. It was a departure. He went to be with the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. It takes the sting out of death. Certainly. Uh, I like this. The psalmist 49. Psalm 49, 5 and verse 15. The psalmist asked the question, 
Why should I fear in days of adversity when the injustice of those who betray me surrounds me? Boy, that describes our world. And he answers it in verse 15. God will redeem my soul from the power of hell, Sheol, for he will, he will take me. He will receive me. God's going to come take you. Isn't that wonderful to know that Jesus is going to take you? He's going to take you by his grace and by his mercy. And again, why do I believe that? Jesus said, if it weren't so, I would have told you. You can take that to the bank, my friend. You might not like churches. You may not like preachers. You may not like Christians. But, boy, it's kind of hard to not like Jesus, isn't it? It's kind of hard to not believe Jesus. And he says, this is so because I've told you that. I conclude my point. An absolute trust in Christ is the ultimate remedy for a troubled heart in times of distress. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today and asking that you give both clarity and comfort from this passage today. We thank you for such a wonderful, caring Savior. May each one of us in this room be prepared for our own departure when you call us to yourself because we've embraced Jesus Christ as our only Savior and Lord. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.